Well, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to ask you to turn in, in your Bibles um, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7 this morning. And one of the things I'm finding interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes is each week, it seems as though I am reminded of a song. And that song ends up on repeat in my mind. So from the very first week, we had music referenced in our message. Yes, I even quoted Pink Floyd, sorry. Um, but but that just tells us how contemporary this book is. And so anyways, or this letter is, this week... The song that ended up on repeat in my mind was one that was at least popularized in 1969 called One, and you probably know it by the first line of the song. One is the loneliest number. It was a song popularized by a band called Three Dog Night. In 1969, a little bit before I was I was alive in 1969, but um, but it was a song I was certainly familiar with. Some of you are going, really, you're that old. (laughs) But I do think that this is a testimony, if you will, of how relevant the book of Ecclesiastes is. I said the very first week that I think that this is the most applicable and relevant book in the Bible. And I'm reminded every week I'm reading it and some contemporary song that unbelieving authors are writing about and singing about. And yet they're singing about the very things that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. How relevant is that? And so, I hope that you are enjoying our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. I know I am. I'm learning a lot, and I'm finding this absolutely fascinating. So let me uh, give you a little bit of idea where we've been. Where we've been. I want to provide a little bit of review. We need to remember. It's important that we review where we've been in the past for a couple of reasons. Number one, the text we're going to be looking at today is not an isolated passage of Scripture. It was not presented to us in a vacuum. In other words, there was a lot of stuff that came before it. There's a lot of stuff that that is going to come after it, and we should remind ourselves of where we have been so that we can better grasp the very text we're going to be looking at today. So, real quickly, well, I don't know if I'll be real quick, but by way of review... What we saw last week was the issue of oppression and injustice. And and the author, whom we are identifying as the preacher, who we've identified as Solomon, the preacher has informed us rightly that oppression and injustice are realities of life under the sun. That we who live in this fallen world are affected or understand that oppression and injustice are realities. And in fact, oppression and injustice are inflicted on both the godly and the ungodly. That is, godly people suffer injustice, just as ungodly people suffer injustice and oppression. But here's the other thing that the preacher told us, and sometimes we may not want to think about this, but it is true, that not only are oppression and injustice are inflicted on the godly and ungodly, they are inflicted by the godly and the ungodly. That's right, that you and I, followers of Christ, can be and have been guilty of the sin of oppression. Now, when we think of oppression, we always think, oh, well, it's somebody else. It's the, it's the legal system. It is the powerful. It is the corporations. It is the politicians. It is the wealthy. It is somebody else. But the preacher has 
informed us that you and I are also perpetrators of injustice and oppression. We gossip. And we bring another person down unfairly. We entertain false or unfounded accusations. We judge by outward appearances. We do not love the good, but rather we rejoice in the evil. All of these things are unjust, and you and I have been guilty of those very things. We always we tend to point to others as though we are untainted by this sin, but the preacher has been very point, has pointedly informed us that not only are you and I affected and the recipients of oppression and injustice, but we are also the perpetrators of it. As children of Adam, we are fallen. Last week we saw that the universality of injustice serves as a mirror to this universal malady. That is, un- that, that is, injustice is universal. Go to any era of history, any era, I don't care which one, and you will find injustice there. Go to any region of the, of the earth and you will find injustice there. You will find oppression in those areas. Any era, any region, at any time, and you will find oppression and injustice. It is not limited to one specific time or one specific group of people. You will find injustice everywhere. And the author notes that. And he says, the universality of it shows us that we're all broken. That we are all in need of being fixed. That we've all been affected and hence we all need to be saved from it. Paul puts it this way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not even one. That's just Paul's way of putting what the author of of Ecclesiastes has stated about the sin of oppression and injustice. So that's one of the places we were. Here's another place that, that we were that will be relevant for us today. And that is the preacher, the author of our book, has informed us that not only can the, the issue, he talks about the issue of work or labor or toil, the work that we do. And he has, one of the things he has done is he has shown us That work is a gift given to us by God. But when work and its fruits are viewed as ultimate, we find ourselves empty and unsatisfied. He would say, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So there is a benefit to work. It is a gift given to God. But when work and its fruits, that is perhaps um, the... the payment that comes from work, the accolades we receive from work, when those become ultimate, then work becomes just a fruitless endeavor. When anything other than God are viewed as ultimate, we will be left wanting. So that's where we've been. I hope that is somewhat clear. Let me give you an idea of where I hope to go today by way of preview. The preacher is going to remain on this theme of work. And he's going to um, utilize the theme of work to address two great lies. He's going to use the theme of work to address two great lies. The first lie, and we'll spend most of our time here, is that I alone am sufficient that I need no other, that I alone, I am the master of my own destiny, I work and I, that's all I need, it's just me. And he's going to address that great lie. The second great lie that he is going to address is that adoration by the crowd is 
ultimately fruitless. And it is unsustainable. And so we have these two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. The one is my value is self-determined versus my value is affirmed by the crowd. So do you see those two kind of ends of the spectrum? On the one side is my value is self-affirmed and the other is my value is determined by the crowd. That's um, pretty much where we're going to go. So seeking, the first one is seeking fulfillment in isolation and the second is seeking fulfillment in the crowd. In all of that, the highlight or perhaps the central theme that the author is going to get at is the importance of companionship. The importance of companionship. So that's pretty much my review and my preview. Um, Let's go ahead and look at our text today. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And if you will, follow along with me as we read God's word. So listen, church, to the words of the living God. Chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from the prison to the throne Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind." And so the song in my head is one is the loneliest number. I like how this passage, how the preacher begins with this word. Again, I saw vanity. Again, I saw vanity. This isn't the first time he's seen vanity. He's been seeing, he sees vanity again. This is a repeated word. Vanity, in other words, repeats itself in many areas and That is, and we've defined vanity as, uh, well, technically, it is that which is fleeting. It is perhaps ascribed to that which is um, uh, the mist of your breath. So we have cold weather now. Go out in the morning and breathe. And the mist that comes out of your, from, that is derived from your, your breath, that it's there for a moment and then disappears. That's the the, the literal idea of this word vanity. It's used in a lot of different ways and it has often to do the idea of meaningless or pointless. And so again, I see pointlessness. Again, I see meaningless. Again, I see that which is fleeting, that which has no lasting value. And this fleeting vapor is not limited to a single realm of life. Again, I see that this, and he's going to talk about a, a, a type uh, of action that is vain, that is fleeting. But the interesting thing here is he has seen vanity in many areas of life. Vanity is not limited. This, this idea of this fleeting vapor is not li- limited to a single realm of life. For instance, he's not just saying, well, the pursuit of pleasure... That's vanity. Everything else is okay. Or the pursuit of wealth. That is vanity. But everything else is kind of okay. No, once again, I see something in life that is fleeting, that is vain, that is meaningless, that is pointless. Every sphere of life that is not driven by the fear of God, the preacher puts forth as empty and valueless and meaningless. Vanity is is the emphasis of life under the sun. And we have described life under the sun as living in this 
fallen world, living in this fallen realm. It is every sphere of life that is not driven by the fear of God. So when God is not ultimate, that is life under the sun. In any area of our lives where God is not ultimate, that is being described as life under the sun. And it is fleeting. It is pointless. It is meaningless. Vanity, then, is the emphasis of life under the sun. And this does not appear to be shocking to the preacher. I find thought that was interesting. He's not shocked by the fact that these things, life under the sun, is pointless. So here, what we see as pointless in our first example is the individual whose labor for self or result Labor for self results in isolation. Labor for for his own self or for his own personal gain results in isolation. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? One person who has no other. The person who labors for self, this is the one who toils under the sun to such a degree resulting in the abandonment or the departure of wife, children, and friends. This we might term as the workaholic who works so hard and is so committed to his toil that one day he wakes up and his wife is gone, his kids have left, and he has no friends. This one toils under the sun to such a degree that all of those he thought he cared for, he is driven away. Now this person has everything that the world has portrayed as ultimate. He has titles. He has patents. He has publications. He has books that he has authored. He has accolades and respect and credit limits. And yet, he has no one. He has all of these things that the world will say, this is a value, this you ought to pursue. And he has pursued it, and he has accomplished it, and he is now all by himself. His eyes are never satisfied. His eyes are never satisfied. He has swallowed the lie that the desires of the heart can be purchased. And the fruit of believing this lie is that he has lost family and friends. Now make no mistake, he may at times be surrounded by people, but he has no relationships. He has riches without relationships. He may be around a crowd of people. We'll get to that. But with none of them does he have a relationship or anything meaningful. Once again, Riches without relationship. And Solomon, the preacher, our author, brings this to a conclusion. This is pointless and an unhappy business. This is vanity. It is pointless and an unhappy business. The good gift of work has become ultimate And God gave us work. But we have displaced this good gift and we have treated it as ultimate. And we have displaced God with this good gift. God has given us the good gift of work, but we have made it ultimate and not God. And this is a fruitless business. This is an unhappy business. Work, church, is a wonderful gift and it is a cruel master. So then the preacher goes on. So I've seen vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil and his eyes are never satisfied. 
this is an unprofitable business. This is a, a bad business arrangement. And then the preacher, the author, uh, gives us this very memorable phrase, one that many of us know um, know well. You may not have known that it came from the book of Ecclesiastes, but you know the phrase, two are better than one. Companionship is better than isolation. People are better than possessions. Now, before I move along in this, let me acknowledge that all of us exist on a spectrum of social interaction. That is, we can agree that two are better than one, but not all of us are, well, let me put it, I'll I'll just speak personally. Some of us are more, enjoy isolation a little bit more than others. I enjoy being alone. In fact, I would say I need to be alone. It's important that I am alone from time to time. Before I was married, some of my friends were surprised. What did you do this weekend? Well, I went to a movie. Really, who'd you go with? Nobody. I just went by myself. What? Yeah, and let me just really mess things up. Before the movie, by myself, I went to dinner at a restaurant by myself. Oh, and I enjoyed it. Now, not everybody's like that. I, I love be, coming to church and being around y'all. But I also need to be alone and get away and be isolated. And I'm, there are probably some in here who, are, who need the isolation even more than I do. And some of you can't stand that at all. You need to be around people. So I guess my point here is that two are better than one. And yet we all exist on the spectrum of social interaction. Interaction because God has made us social creatures. God has made us as social. He did not create us to be solely isolated individuals living off in the wilderness all by ourselves with nobody around us. That's not how we were created. It's interesting. In the uh, second century A.D., maybe 100, 150 years after Christ rose from the dead, um, we see the, the arrival or the, the rising of what was called the monastic movement. And the monastic movement was just that, that men moved out into the middle of the desert and got away from everybody. And they lived by themselves. And they prayed and they fasted and they relied every once in a while somebody would bring them some food. And then there arose a new type of monasticism. And people began to ask the question and said, well, wait a second, if you're all by yourself, how do you love anybody? How do you express love to somebody if you are by yourself? How do you complete or fulfill the command to love somebody else if you're by yourself? How do you serve your neighbor and your brother if you're by yourself? So they began to cloister themselves in small communities. But it's interesting that people tried to be alone and they found, you know what? This isn't working. See, we were created. We were not created to be alone. We were created as social, social creatures. Let me give you the key passage of text in the Bible. You probably are thinking of it already. It's found in Genesis chapter 2. God has created Adam, and Adam has been naming the animals, and they all seem to have partners with one another, and God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper suitable to him. And he gave him Eve. It is not good for man to be alone. See, we are created as social creatures and in this sense we bear the image of the eternal God who himself is a social being. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit have perfect fellowship with one another. There was a love between the Father and the Son before creation. Look at this in John chapter 17, verses 5 and verse, verses 5 and 24. Verse 5 goes like this. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You and I shared something in common before the world ever existed. And then in verse 24, again, Jesus, Father, I desire that they, the disciples also, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Even before the foundation of the world, there was a love between the Father and the Son. There's a wonderful book called The Delighting in the Trinity. I think it's put out by a man by the name of Michael Reeves. Reeves is the last name for sure. But he talks about this, this fellowship within the Godhead. And so then... God creates mankind as a social being because God himself is a social being. There was a love between the Father and the Son before creation ever began. Isolation. um, Unchecked isolation can be relationally devastating. And this is my own personal opinion. I believe that the COVID lockdowns were socially and relationally devastating. I think we see so much violence now because of this isolation. Because we were not meant to isolate. We were meant to be together. And the preacher goes on. And he gives us a number of examples. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. That is, they have a good return on their investment. Again, he's using business terms. Two's better than one because you're going to get a good return. And then he gives us three examples. And and let let me just say, I think that these examples that he gives us are um, examples that are derived from um, people in the ancient Near East going on a journey. You have to remember that if you were to travel in the ancient Near East during the time of Solomon, this was a dangerous endeavor. You just didn't drive and go to the Motel 6 and spend the night and, you know, your greatest fear was a dripping faucet or something like that. It was dangerous and it got cold in the desert. And you... and the author here is saying it is a good return on your investment to have to be more than just a single isolated individual and he uses this as the background uh, an individual going on a journey two are better than one because they have a good reward on their toil if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls so there's assistance two are better than one we can assist one another we can help one another Woe to the solo traveler if he falls. Who's going to help him? And the second one. Um, Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So there is warmth or comfort that is provided by being together. Nights get cold, even in the desert. But the sharing of resources um, provides some comfort and some warmth to get us through the night. And then there's protection. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And then he says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so there's protection. So we see that there is assistance, there is comfort, there is protection. We have each other's backs. Two is better than one. And then he says a threefold cord cannot be broken. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just clarify what we're talking about here because oftentimes this is misunderstood. What is meant by a threefold cord is not easily broken. Well, I'm going to probably disappoint some of you, but because my 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 interpretation of this isn't very spectacular. But let me describe what a threefold cord is not speaking of. It is not speaking of a family. That is a husband and wife in God. 
I think that's a good system. If you are married, husband, wife, and God, that, that, that's, a, that's a great union. Keep that going. It is not speaking of family in the sense of husband, wife, and child. And it is not a reference to the Trinity. Okay, then what is it? Well, here's my unspectacular answer. Um, it's just, it is numerical parallelism. How do you like that? Numerical parallelism, which is just the way that Hebrews wrote. It, it, it was used in Hebrew poetry, but it was also just used in their vernacular. And if two are good, then three is better. Amos 1, perhaps, is our great, probably our best example of this. For three transgressions and for four, I am going to do such and such. What is it? Is it for three or for four? No, if there's three and even for four. So uh, he just kind of... Says there's three, so there's three, a threefold core. Two are better than one. Three is even better. That's just the general idea. The point of this is number number one that this two is better than one refers to those of you who, um, to those who are single, whether because you. Um, uh, your spouse has, has passed away and gone on to be with the Lord, or you have never married. Two are still better than one. A relationship is still better. You don't, it's not limited to those who are married. It is for all men and all women. See, we are not islands. We are not lone wolves. We are social creatures, and we are better with others. Let me draw our attention to some biblical references that will help us. And the first one we see in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And I actually read this, we actually read this verse earlier in our confession of sin, and here it is. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Do you see any repeated phrases that maybe we should pay attention to? That you love one another. You are to love one another. If you have love for one another, maybe Jesus is getting at something here. We have been called to love one another. Love cannot be expressed in isolation. We are called to love one another just as Christ has loved us. In fact, he says so. I command you, love one another. In what way? Just as I have loved you. And we see this then in Ephesians chapter uh, 5 verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. John fifteen twelve that we love just as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. So we are called to love one another just as Christ has loved us. How will the world, this is by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How do people know that we are his disciples? Well, by the bumper sticker on my car, of course. By the t-shirt that I wear. By the way, we do have little uh, stickers in the back for Church on Rounder Plays. We would encourage you to put them on your car. But they will not prove that you love one another. That is not evidence of your love for Christ or your love for one another. It is necessary in order for us to love one another, we need to be with one another. In fact, the scriptures are filled with one another passages. And so I thought I would bring our church covenant out, which we read every time we gather together for a church meeting. Because it is filled with, this is what we say to one another that we commit to love one another, we will build up one another, we will encourage one another, we will serve one another, pray for one another, exhort one another, rebuke and correct one another, discipline one another, bear with one another's burdens, forgive one another, 
Maintain unity with one another. You're going, that's amazing. Where did you get that? Well, I just did a Bible search and I put in the words one another. And there they are. A whole page of one another's. God has called us to be with one another. Because why? Two are better than one. The scriptures are filled with one another passages detailing on how love is to be manifested. Now, there's a problem with this. There are some difficulties with this. And some of you may even be thinking about this. Wait a second. That's difficult because we also hurt one another. We also offend one another. We also take one another for granted. Yes, as a community, we will be hurt by one another. And let me just add this, we will hurt one another. But I will say this, that it is that very feature of being hurt by one another that will ultimately conform us into the image of Christ. It's, it's amazing to me. I have, I've had, we've been here over 20 years now, and I've had people come to me and they say, well, I'm going to leave the church. Oh, why? Well, so-and-so offended me. Oh, okay. So where are you going to go? Well, we're going to go to such-and-such a church. They're like, really? That's where you're going to go? That's an amazing church. You mean to tell me that in that church there is nobody who will ever offend you? Well, no. Well, then what are you going to do? When they offend you, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave that church? And then what? Go to another church where you're, eventually you're going to get offended or hurt and somebody's going to say the wrong thing? Then you're going to go to another church? You will never grow in Christ-likeness. We need to learn to forgive one another. By the way, the very people who say, I'm going to go somewhere else because I got hurt, are also the are also those who have hurt other people. Because there is nobody in this church who has not hurt somebody else. Maybe unintentionally. But we have all been hurt by one another and we have all probably hurt one another. And we, God, has given us one another to grow us into Christ-likeness where we can be men and women who say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We will never grow if we just run. And I say this, and maybe I shouldn't, but I, I said this often. I'm so glad that, well, this I'll say, and I should say this more often, I'm glad you guys are here, and I'm glad you guys have committed to this church, but here's the bottom line. If you're here long enough, we will hurt you. You will be hurt by somebody in this church. It may even be me. Oh, and by the way, you probably everybody has hurt somebody else in this church. We just Because we're fallen, broken human beings who are striving to live the life that Christ has called us to, to live, and we do so imperfectly, and so we forgive one another. We exhort one another. We are quick to maybe call them out. Man, listen, brother, listen, sister. This is what you did. That hurt. Oh, I'm sorry. These one another's is called the church. In fact, all the metaphors of the church are corporate. They are referred to as buildings. I have people all the time, and I hear this, people say, I'm the church. No, you're not. Just stop it. Don't ever say that. You are not the church. You may be one of the living stones of the building that is called the church, and more likely than not, God has placed you as one living stone right next to another living stone who probably is the one who's going to get most on your nerves. And God has placed you next to that one. Because He's conforming us to the image of Christ. He's fitting us for heaven together with one another forever. He, he calls the church the body of Christ. The body isn't one thing. It is many parts that are all fit and knit together. It, it is called the family of God. Well, we all have brothers and sisters and siblings and, and crazy uncles. 
Yeah, that's the family. In fact, the very word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia, and it demands more than one. Maybe the best example, or one of the better examples in the Bible of the church and one another is 1 Corinthians 12, where we are the body. And the body isn't all one eye, because then where would the hearing be? We're all parts of the body, knitted and fit together. You may be a finger. You may be a fingernail. I don't know. But you are part of the body. And you are not isolated. If you're walking down the street and you see a finger lying in the street, you're going, there's a problem. You by yourself, saying, well, I'm I'm just me. It's just me. And no, you weren't created that way. That's a problem. So, our next question then is, well, then what do we do about that? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. There are probably way more, and you can probably think of better ones than I came up with. Um, Some ideas. Arrive early. A lot of visitors in our church come early. They haven't figured out yet that, you know, you can show up five minutes after we start. Spend time with others after church. People that you don't know well. Invite them to coffee or to lunch or whatever. We have holidays coming up. This would be a great time for us to invite another person who we don't know real well. Look around. Maybe somebody doesn't have a lot of family or their family all lives out of town. Invite them. Bring them into your home. Especially a newcomer. There's somebody new in the church. Bring them in. There are people who are in nursing homes and care facilities who could really use another. This is the idea that the preacher is talking about here. I saw vanity on the side. One person who has no other. And this is an unhappy business because we were not made to be solo. You may be like me and like more solo stuff than another person, but as much as I like being alone and love being alone, let me tell you this. When it's time to come home and be with Simone, there is nothing better than that. I was at a a workshop a couple of weeks ago and, and, and I was generally alone. There was a whole bunch of people there, but I didn't have a relationship with any of those people. And for three days, I was mostly alone. I enjoyed it. But let me tell you, I knew good and well that at 11.30 on Friday, Simone was going to be coming, and I could not wait. As much as I want to be alone and enjoy it, God has also given me a great blessing that two are better than one, and I could not wait for that moment. So, let's find ways to be with one another. Our next big section here, and I'll try to work my way through this fairly quickly. I won't spend a lot of time here. Is in verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who stand in the king's palace. There was no end of all the people, all whom... He led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, let me see if I can help. This is, by the way, a notoriously difficult passage for Hebrew scholars. And I'm not going to get into the weeds. Uh, First of all, some of it's probably way above my pay grade but it is notoriously difficult. Let me, what we do see here is that we see a poor and wise youth versus an old king who no longer listens to advice. Those are the two maybe individuals we see here. Um, This is uh, uh, one, one commentary said this, and I think this is a good, a good translation, perhaps a paraphrase, but a really nice translation of this section. Listen carefully. 
It is better to have a poor but wise young ruler than one who is old and foolish, who no longer listens to advice. Even if the young ruler comes from prison to become king, or even if he is born poor in the kingdom, he will eventually rule. It is better for him to rule than an old foolish king. Now, the first thing we need to understand is we need to uh, recognize that there, are, there is a cultural distance between us and this passage of text. Because to us, we think of the, the poor wise youth as the hero. The one who, of course, you want a, a poor wise youth. But you have to remember, in the ancient Near East, youth were fools. It is the old who have wisdom. I know we live in an age where, um, where youth is viewed positively and uplifted. But here, in the day in which Solomon wrote, the old would have been viewed more positively. But it, so it was better to have a kid who is wise than a king who is old and no longer listens to advice. So it's better that was this poor and wise youth even though he was in prison and went to the throne, even though he was poor and he, he grew up and ascended to a kingship, that is better than having a king who no longer, an old, an old person who ought to have wisdom, who no longer listens to advice. That's the general idea. But here's the interesting thing about this poor, wise youth. Look at verse 16. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and striving after the wind. Those who come later will not be pleased with him. The masses love him for a time, and then they look for somebody else. Church, the the masses are fickle. It is not uncommon to lift up a person and then rejoice and even participate in their downfall. Perhaps the thing we enjoy One of the things we enjoy greatly is the lifting up of somebody, but the thing we probably like even more is participating in their downfall. It doesn't matter whether they are an actor, actress, a, a, a singer, an entertainer, a sports figure. We love to lift them up in the crowd. All comes along behind that person, and then we rejoice when we see their downfall. It is not uncommon for us to do that. So there's this contrast Look at the contrast in verses 7 through 12. We are introduced to the loner whose work consumes him and leaves him alone. In verses 13 through 16, we see the person who is loved by the crowds, who event, and the crowds eventually turn on him and leave him isolated because another more popular individual arises who garners the attention of the crowd. Here are the parallels. Both the loner and the crowd pleaser have acquired alternatives to true relationships. We can be surrounded by a throng of people and yet have no true relationships. And we witness this phenomena all the time. The crowd loves this person, but they have no true relationship. We see this in the Gospels, don't we? Jesus was loved by the crowd, but eventually they tired of his message and they quickly demanded his crucifixion. I I love this passage of text. In John chapter 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The context of this is Jesus has just fed a bunch of people, and they love him. And they follow him across the lake. And they just think he is the greatest thing ever. And Jesus perceives that you guys just want me, you just like me because I feed you. So he begins to tell them the truth of the gospel, and that's where we pick up. After this, many of his disciples turned away from him and no longer followed him. Oh, well, let's go find somebody else who will do, who will feed us and do good things for us. Fame is fleeting, and when it is gone, who will be left? remember when I was doing a lot of bike racing, some rather famous individuals 
who would maybe have a bad weekend and didn't do very well. And of course, then all the magazines would say, well, you know, this person was pretty good, but now they're not so great, and blah, blah, blah. And they, you know, what happened to you? you? You know, you're no good anymore. But in talking to one, he goes, you know, I, I come home, and despite what the magazines and the newspapers say, and despite what all the reporters want to talk about and all of these things, when I come home, my kids love me. They have no care whatsoever what place I got last weekend. My wife is concerned for me. She cares for me. She takes care of me. Am I hurting? Am I broken? What, how can I minister to you? Folks, when the crowd leaves, likely those whom you've developed a meaningful relationship will be the ones who are there for you. So we see relationships again being what is so important. In the first case, the person eliminated relationships for riches. And in the second case, the person substituted crowds for true relationships. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've repented and believed the good news, you have peace with God. He is your heavenly Father. He will never leave you or forsake you. And that never leaving and never forsaking you includes the day of judgment. He will not be your enemy on that day. If you are not a follower of Christ, one day you will stand before the righteous judge of the earth and the words, depart from me, I never knew you. So let me conclude real quickly. Relationships, not riches. I I think that's what this whole passage is about. It is about valuable relationships, not crowds and not riches. Crowds are fickle. We are loved momentarily and then we are abandoned. We trust, entrusting ourselves to the acceptance of the crowd as shifting sand. They will find somebody better, somebody newer, somebody fresher, and they will abandon you and leave you. The ones who will be left behind are the ones you've made or built a relationship with. And riches are a poor substitute for relationships. And so, church began with a song one is the loneliest number I pray that this day we realize the church is not about being alone but it is about the one another's that is why God has created us and that is why God has put us together and God has given you friends and family um, and I would firmly admonish and exhort you to invest in in relationships, even if it's at the expense of riches.